I don't know your plans for later today, but for a lot of people on the 4th of July, you get together, have a meal with family, uh, just enjoy some time celebrating around a good bit of food. Suppose you showed up and uh, nobody brought any food. Kids are getting antsy, the adults maybe even more so. Everyone's hungry. You got 40 people, 50 people, 100 people, no food. Someone says, hey, you know what? We found half a, half a package of hot dog buns and a couple of hot dogs, but that's not going to be enough. That's not enough to feed a teenage boy, let alone everybody here. And then somebody comes up and says, you know what? That's enough. You're doubtful. You say, how could that possibly be enough? But it's enough. You keep putting them on the grill and you keep feeding the people. You fill a cooler up with all the pieces that are left over afterwards, enough for everybody to have a little bit of a meal the next day. But then the guy who fed everyone in this surprising and unexpected way starts saying strange things. And suddenly you get the sense that he's not talking about food anymore. He's talking about something else. He starts saying things like, My body is your food, and my blood is your drink. And you say, I appreciate the free meal, but I don't want any part of this. It's what we see in our story this morning. Turn to John chapter 6 if you're not already there. We see here in John chapter 6 that Jesus is the bread of life, but for your soul, not for your belly. The problem for the Israelites was that they were stuck on physical ideas and things they could see right in front of them instead of spiritual realities that Jesus was pointing them to. That he is the way to God, far better than even the miraculous provision of manna for God's people in the wilderness. I think the first thing that we see here from this chapter, at the very beginning, is that Jesus wants disciples, not freeloaders. Jesus wants disciples, not freeloaders. Jesus starts out by testing the disciples' faith. He points out, we have famine and a large crowd and nowhere to get food. Does that sound a lot like the Israelites when they came out of the land of Egypt? That was their complaint anyway. When Jesus says this, notice the response of His disciples. Philip complains. 200 days wages is not enough for them for everyone to have even a little bit. There's a lad here, says Andrew, has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus says, have the people sit down. He doesn't say have them go to the marketplace. He doesn't say have them run around frantically and worried. He says, have them sit down. He takes the food, he gives thanks, and he passes it out. There's more than 5,000 people there. There's 5,000 men, probably women and children as well. So there could have easily been a crowd of something like 10,000 people 
One small lunch feeds 10,000 people. The crowd, why were they there? They were fascinated by Jesus' healing of the sick. You see that in verse 2. It's time for a feast, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, but they have no food, nothing to celebrate Passover with, nothing to even eat for that day. There are interesting parallels that some have pointed out here with uh, what Jesus is doing here and what Psalm 23 says that God as the Good Shepherd does. We don't see Jesus calling himself the Good Shepherd until John chapter 10, but setting a table for them, causing them to lie down in green grass, providing food for them in abundance so that their cup runs over. There's parallels there. Jesus feeds the crowd like God fed the Israelites in the wilderness right after their Passover. Similar time of year to when God did the same miracle with the manna for the Israelites. Right after their complaining, like Philip complained. What's the response of the people? Here's the prophet that has come into the world. This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now remember back when the Pharisees talked to John the Baptist and they said, Who are you? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah who is to come? Are you the Messiah? And he says, no. John the Baptist is now kind of moved off the scene. Jesus is here. They say, well, you must be the prophet. Why? Because he does this miracle. So what, what do they want to do next? Verse 15. Jesus rejects their attempt to crown him. They had their own idea of what Jesus wanted them to do. Jesus came to call disciples. They wanted a king to look after them. Which is ironic because in the Old Testament, God said, when you get a king, what's he going to do? He's going to make your children be his servants. He's going to take your food and abundance from you by way of taxes. But the people are still set on this idea of a king. And the, the king who's promised to come will be a perfect king. Not going to do those things that Saul and the other kings did in the Old Testament. And yet they want a king. They want a king to look after them. They want a king to lead them, to provide for their physical needs. They're so set on this idea that they're going to seize Jesus and take him by force. You don't want to be king? We're going to make you king anyway. Get rid of Herod. Get rid of Pilate. Get rid of all these other people, these Roman officials, all of these overseers that have been appointed for us. We can have a new king. It's going to be great because he's going to lead us. He has this power, so we never have to buy food again. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. Jesus, in a sign once again that he is the true Messiah, knows what they are thinking. Perceiving that they intend to come and take him by force, he withdraws to the mountain alone. Why? That's the moment to seize if you want a following. Why does he say no? Why does he hide himself from them? Well, we see it especially in the book of Matthew, but we see glimpses of it here in John as well. It was not Jesus' time. His hour had not yet come. It was not the Father's will. It was not the appointed time for him to rule and to reign. He had to first suffer, as we'll see later in the book. Jesus tested the disciples' faith at the beginning of the chapter by saying, how are we going to feed all these people? Now, he tests their faith again by leaving them seemingly all alone in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus isn't with them. They get into a boat. Jesus hasn't come to them. The sea is stirred up. They've rowed three or four miles. They're not just a little ways off the shore. They're alone in the middle of a huge storm, and they don't know what to do. 
They see Jesus walking across the water to them. They're even more frightened. Not only are we potentially going to drown because there's this huge storm, but now this, this figure that we don't know is walking across the water toward us. And Jesus calls out, and they hear his voice, and they recognize it's Jesus. They receive him into the boat, and immediately they're at the shoreline. Jesus tests their faith. They don't really seem to pass this test like they didn't pass the one at the beginning of the chapter. But is Jesus truly the one that God has sent into the world? I think this miracle among the previous one makes it clear that he is. The rest of the chapter is devoted to the question of false versus true disciples. Do you follow Jesus as a disciple or because you want him to give you stuff? Do you trust him even when it seems impossible or you don't see a way out? Do you follow him just because he does interesting things? Echoes of the previous chapter as well. So the rest of the chapter makes this point. Not only does Jesus want true disciples, not freeloaders, people chasing, him af- chasing after him just for food, Jesus drives false disciples away. The crowd is following Jesus as though he's some kind of celebrity. We see this in verses 22 through 25. They look, they don't see Jesus. They say, well, there's this one boat missing. Well, let's just walk around the seashore and, or the, the, so the, the lake shore until we find this boat. They come and they find Jesus. Verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? They followed him because they wanted to see what he would do next. This is made clear by verse 26. They call him Rabbi, but they're not going to pay attention to the words that he teaches them in the rest of the chapter. So what's Jesus' response? If these people were so excited that they wanted to make me king by force, and now they followed me all the way around to the other side of the lake... These are my people. I'm going to have them follow after me. This is my moment. I'm going to seize it. Jesus rebukes them instead, surprisingly, for us in our day of of, uh, people on TV who want nothing more than popularity and money, and uh, even our own temptation toward those sorts of things. Why would you throw away an opportunity like this? It's the moment. If you were were running a political campaign or or trying to get a promotion and everybody said, everybody was happy with you, with what you'd done, and that's the moment to seize in those sort of opportunities. But here Jesus says no. Why? Verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, But for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Jesus wants them to receive him as the bread of life for their souls, not just follow around after him so he will feed their stomachs again. Notice the next thing that they say. What shall we do that we may work the works of God. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. This is the problem, as we saw last week, with religion. 
Religion says I can work my way to God. Jesus says you can never do enough to work your way to God. In fact, your attempts to work your way to God are insulting and, and even blasphemous to God. So stop trying to work your way to God and believe in Jesus who has done everything that you will ever need and is the only one who can do what you need to make you acceptable to God. They said, what should we do? And Jesus says, don't do, believe. Now, is there a doing that follows after the belief? Absolutely. But right here, Jesus says, get the order right. You don't do, and then God accepts you. You believe, and then God accepts Jesus on your behalf. And so many people are confused about this in our world today. They say, what is it? How do I become acceptable to God? Live a good life. What does that look like? Pray prayers. <coughs> give money. Don't be a jerk. And if you've done an iota more of good than you have of bad, you're all set. That's not how heaven works. That's not how God operates. You need Jesus. Jesus doesn't need what you think you can do to work your way to God. Jesus says, believe in him whom God has sent. I said, well, if we're going to believe, we want a little proof. Is this a sign of belief or unbelief? It's a sign of unbelief. Them demanding a sign right after he did a sign is not belief. It's curiosity. It's, we want to see if you're better than this Moses guy that we think is pretty cool. What sign will you do? Moses made bread fall down from heaven. Can you one-up that? Jesus says, by the way, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. He was your leader at the time, but God's the one who gave you bread from heaven. Verse 33, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they say, Lord, give us always this bread. Why? For the exact same reasons that the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 said, give me the water so that I don't have to keep going down to the well every day. They're still stuck on this idea of physical bread. If God gives us manna, then we don't have to work other than maybe going and picking up a little bit every day. Jesus is drawing a parallel between himself and the manna. He's not saying that he is manna to feed their physical bodies, but he's saying he is, in the same way the manna sustained life, he is the one who gives life, and they need life for their souls far more than they need life for their bodies. So Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life from heaven. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 35, come to me, you'll never thirst. That's what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. He adds to it here that he is the bread of life. Because he's just provided bread, and because they're talking about manna that came down from heaven, he's saying, I'm the bread who came down from heaven. Like Nicodemus in chapter 3, they see and they don't understand, they don't believe. So Jesus explains what's going on. Verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, 
So everyone the Father gives to the Son is going to come to the Son. The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. If the Father has given them to me, when they come to me, I'm not going to send them away. Why? Verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm not going to drive away the ones that God is sending to me because I came to do my Father's will. We, taught, we sang that in the song just a few moments ago. The Son comes to perfectly obey the Father's will. What is God's will? Of all He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. The Father gives to the Son. The Son receives from the Father. Those He has received from the Father, He promises He will raise up on the last day. Verse 40 sums it all up. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. He makes it very clear. You see the Son. You believe in the Son. You will have life in the resurrection on that last day. Which is very similar to what he said in chapter 5, where he said, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son to have life in Himself and He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus is giving them the same message in a slightly different way perhaps to a slightly different group of people, but Jesus is saying the same thing. If you believe in me, you have life. Which is the main point that John's making throughout this whole book. Believe the signs that Jesus did so that you may have life in his name. Same theme, presented in a slightly different way. Same Jesus, same response to the crowds. The crowds do. What we do sometimes, they were stuck on physical needs. When I, when I prayed this morning to open the service, I, I tried to highlight that idea that our spiritual needs are just as important, if not more so in many cases, than our physical needs, but because we see our physical needs. My arm hurts, my back hurts, my foot hurts, I'm sick. Those are the things that capture our attention. I lust, I hate, I'm lazy. We're like, yeah, those are problems, but they're not as big of a deal as these things I need right now. That's exactly the attitude of the, of the Jews, the Israelites here. Because they ignored spiritual realities in favor of physical realities, they stumbled over Jesus' words. Jesus says, I'm the bread who has come down from heaven. What's their response? Verses 41 and 42. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? He grew up around here. If he grew up around here, he couldn't have come down from heaven. Again, spiritual blindness to the possibility of God's power that both things could be true. He grew up around here 
and he came down from heaven first. But they're unwilling to admit that. They're stuck on only the things that they can see, on only the explanations that they can rationalize apart from the supernatural. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We try to do this in our society today. If we can't explain it by rationalistic, naturalistic processes, it can't be true. That's where they're at. They come up with another excuse in verse 52. But before we get there, Jesus' response to them is, don't grumble among, among yourselves. So again, Jesus has this opportunity to be king, and he says no. Jesus has this opportunity to say, hey, you guys are awesome for following me, and he rebukes them. Jesus has the opportunity to say, it's okay, I, I know that you don't get it, we'll just, we'll just work it out. And Jesus says, stop it. Don't grumble among yourselves. Think about what I am saying. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Why are you not hearing me? Because you have no part in God. Now, we have to be careful here. Because we can easily twist this to say that that person is not responding to the gospel in this moment, so God has not chosen them for salvation, so I don't have to worry about telling them the gospel anymore, I don't have to worry about being a good testimony to them. That's not the point of this. From a theological perspective, this passage, among all the passages that I've ever studied in Scripture, was the one that convinced me that Jesus, that God is sovereign in salvation. In other words, the reason that one person is saved and another person is not saved is ultimately the sovereign plan of God. Because what does it say? All the Father gives will come to me. If they come, I won't cast them out. I'll raise them up on the last day. No one will come unless the Father draws them. God has to initiate the work for someone to be saved. Now, Jesus can lead with that. You and I typically shouldn't. What do we lack that Jesus had? We lack his knowledge of both the way that God is working and who is in which category according to God's plan. So when you and I present the gospel, what is our responsibility? You need to repent. You need to believe. That's not going to happen unless God does the behind-the-scenes work. But our responsibility is not to come up and say, figure out if God has called you to salvation. Because they don't know and we don't know, so that's, that's pointless. The Puritan idea that you should pray for conversion is a little bit closer to the biblical idea because it's God's power that's going to save you. But I would go even beyond that and say, and we can be confident that he has once we do the things that he said we must do, which is to believe in the one whom he, he has sent. There doesn't have to be this years-long waiting period and wondering, am I belonging to God? Am I not belonging to God? We can have confident assurance that we belong to God if we believe in Jesus whom He has sent as the only way to God, as the one who took care of our sins when we couldn't earn our way to God, as the one who is perfect in all the ways that we have failed. If we believe that, we can have confident assurance that we know Him. And John explores all those themes in his book of 1 John. But here... Jesus is saying, you don't believe. And the reason you don't believe is because the Father's not drawing you. 
It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You want to say you know God the Father? The test of whether you know God the Father is if you come to God the Son. Or more specifically, if you come to God the Father through God the Son. Like we saw last week, you can't have the Son, but not the Father, or the Father, but not the Son. They are united. You've got to have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You can't say, oh, I believe in one, but not the other two. Or I believe in two, but not the other one. All persons of the Godhead must be believed in in order to come to God. They were convinced that they were the ones who knew what God had taught. They come to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, where did you go? Where did you come from? They act like they're willing and ready to hear and to listen, like they're the ones who are going to receive the teaching, and they keep rejecting it. Jesus says, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. You can't know God the Father, except to the extent that he's revealed himself in Scripture, and particularly now, right before you, in me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. What does that mean? Manna is not the bread of life. Quit chasing after it. The food that I gave you, the bread and fish that I gave you just a little while ago on that grassy plain, that's not the bread of life. You're going to eat it, and you ate it, and it filled you for a little while, and then you're going to need to eat again, and someday you're still going to die. What you need is not the bread that perishes, that molds, that doesn't last, that doesn't satisfy for a long term. You need me, Jesus says, as the bread of life who is eternal, who satisfies forever and gives you eternal life. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 50. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Here comes their second complaint or grumbling or response to what he's teaching. Verse 52, Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? There's an interesting point to be made here, that people who are focused merely on the physical and not on the spiritual will keep trying to work their way to God. He can't be from heaven because we know where he grew up. How in the world can he give us his flesh to eat? That's bizarre and strange. They're only focused on the physical things, and so instead of accepting Jesus' call to believe in him and stop trying to work their way to God, they refuse that, and they throw up all these excuses of why it can't be the way that Jesus says it is. Jesus responds in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. 
strange statements, difficult statements. But probably the best way to understand it is this. When you take food and water into yourself, it sustains life. Jesus is saying, you have to take me into yourself. You have to be united with me. You have to have my life in you if you are going to have life. You don't take me in. You don't become united with me. You don't share in my life. You have no life. You can eat all the bread and drink all the water in the whole world and you will still die. But if you receive me, take me in, believe in me, become one with me, you will live. There's a powerful picture of this in what we will do in a few moments. The Lord's table is not the actual body and blood of Christ. Despite misunderstandings of this passage and the teaching of many churches, it doesn't magically become Jesus' body and blood even though it looks like bread and, and juice or wine. It doesn't, it doesn't magically actually become Christ. We're not sacrificing Christ over again. Christ's sacrifice was once for all. And yet in it is a powerful picture of this idea that Jesus has come within us, dwells within us, gives us life, and in the performing of the reimagining of the Passover that is the Lord's table, we are reminded that we are united with God and we have his life in ourselves. What's the response of the crowd here, though? The disciples find his statement to be difficult. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? If he was going for a huge following, he's done a terrible job because he's driving away these huge masses of people that are following after him. But if he is seeking after true disciples, he's doing exactly what his father has called him to do, confident in the reality that those that his father is giving to him will be drawn to him, will come to him, will receive the life that he's offering. What about the twelve? The crowds stopped following him. What about the twelve? Before we get there, Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What if then you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Just like he said to Nicodemus, you need to be born of the Spirit. You need new spiritual life. The fact that you're alive right now is a temporary state. You need spiritual life to live forever. And like when he talked to Nathaniel that he saw him at a distance under the tree, he knew those things. He knew their hearts, like it says at the end of chapter 2. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Many of the crowds look like they're genuinely following him. Judas Iscariot looks like he's one of the twelve. But as it says here, and as it says in verse 70, he knows that Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, was going to betray him. Verse 65, and he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, 
that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Salvation is a gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't seize it. God has to freely give it to you. Many withdraw, verse 66. Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. The crowd that we've seen building from the beginning of the book starts to shrink. What about the twelve disciples? Jesus now tests the twelve again. You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why did Jesus pick Judas if he knew he was going to betray him? For one, to fulfill the words of Scripture, obviously, but for another... I think to illustrate this point that even those who seem closest to God are not necessarily true followers of God. This is evident from the crowds, but it's evident even from those closest to Jesus. Judas walks with Jesus for three, three and a half years, lives with them, eats with them, shares a dwelling with them, and still betrays them, stealing from the money bag, angling how he can have a more advantageous position, plotting how he can betray Jesus. So what's the lesson in that from us? If Jesus drives away true disciples, even from among the twelve that he called himself out of those Israelites to follow after him, where does that leave us? Not that we lose our salvation. I want to make clear, Jesus calling the disciples has parallels, but is not identical to the Father calling people to salvation. So if there's, a, if there's a conflict in your mind, how can he say, all the Father gives me will come to me and I won't cast them out? Does he violate that with what he did with the disciples? No, because he called the disciples for a very specific purpose. And he knew from the outset that Judas was going to betray him, wasn't one of them, and all those sorts of things. But for us, like for the crowds in this story, the question remains. If Jesus wants disciples, not people who are chasing after him to get stuff, are you a disciple or someone who follows God as long as he gives you what you want? And if Jesus tests his disciples with difficult statements to see whether they are truly disciples, even though he knows in his mind which ones they are, when you are confronted with these difficult words of Jesus, are you going to seek to understand them? Are you going to say it's too hard? Forget about it. I, this isn't for me. Jesus is the bread of life for your soul, not for your belly. Don't be blinded to spiritual realities because you're stuck on physical observations of the world around you. Those physical observations have their place, but they don't tell the whole story. Don't reject the supernatural power of God, both in the words of Jesus and in the work that he does in our lives. Instead, receive Jesus as the bread of life. Take him within yourself by believing in him as the one whom God has sent. With him dwelling within you, you have eternal life. Without him, if he is not part of you, you have no part in him. You have no eternal life. You are condemned. You are separated from God. 
And so this passage makes it very clear. Jesus is the bread of life. What are you going to do with him? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to miss the spiritual point that you make in this passage because of the physical illustrations that you used. Not to be blind to spiritual realities like the Israelites were, only seeing what they wanted to achieve uh, politically and personally in terms of, of having food and drink and, and it being an easy thing. Lord, help us to see that following you is not easy, but it is worth it. That it's not necessarily simple to understand every word that you have given to us, but it is necessary and critical that we do so. May all of us here know you as the bread of life so that we may have and be reminded to, that we possess eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.